Father, our heart's desire is to understand you, to know you, and to know more about you. But rather than consider just being filled with some sense of intellectual knowledge about you, Lord, we want to know you personally. And we want to grow in that knowledge, especially in these days and in these times in which we live. We ask this evening for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. We realize, Lord, that without your Spirit, uh, we can't fully understand and fully know what your Word is, is wanting to say to our hearts tonight. So help us, Lord, to focus, to surrender, to, to surrender, to submit to you, Lord, in everything that is to be said and done this evening. Teach us your ways. Teach us your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you. How effective, how effective was the covenant sign of circumcision on the hearts of the children of Israel? I would certainly believe that uh, there was an effectiveness on the bodies of those who were circumcised. The question is, how effective was the covenant sign of circumcision on the hearts of the children of Israel? You see, that certainly was the aim of the Lord for His people. That their hearts would be committed completely and entirely to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, and there it says, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. Later on in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And, and that's the question here. How effective was that on their hearts? That was, the, that was the whole goal, the whole purpose of circumcision. An outward sign of an inward work by God for His people. And we know that the Jews are the only nation in history. Listen carefully. The Jews are the only nation in history with whom God entered into a covenant relationship. You go all the way back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And I always remember, of course, the son of promise to Abraham. Here he's called Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You go on and you realize that that blessing is going to come through the Son of Promise. Now, they were marked, the children of Israel, they were marked by the seal of circumcision as a special people to the Lord. Going all the way back to Genesis 17, 
Verses 9 through 11, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you through their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And by the, and by the way, the only ones who would know would be those who were circumcised. They am in God. You see the covenant. And it was a personal covenant, yet it was a covenant for the nation. But then later on in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, here God says to them, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now here's another question to you. Why have I taken you through this history and explanation? Because the tragedy, you see, the tragedy for Israel is that over the years they trusted the covenant and the ritual of circumcision to be their guarantee of acceptance before the Lord. They were trusting in just the ritual of circumcision itself to be the guarantee. But what was the key? It wasn't the foreskin of the flesh. It was the foreskin of the heart that God wanted to remove. So what was the idea in the minds of the Jewish people much later on as, as time progressed? They began to say, okay, well we have the covenant, we have the ritual of circumcision. We have no need to repent. Listen, no need to repent. No need to believe. No need to repent and believe. If this is what we've got, this is all we need. That was for the, uh, in other words, uh, the, the guarantee itself had to be for the uncircumcised Gentiles, but not for us. We're already okay. Now, we're going way back to get into the mindset of the Jewish people at the time of Jeremiah. But it extended way beyond that, because we see that both John the Baptist and Jesus himself faced this obstacle in their ministries. For example, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. In Matthew 3, 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John the Baptist said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, listen to this, do not think to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid, uh, laid to the root of, uh, I should say, now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So again, it wasn't just because you went through the act of circumcision as far as the males were concerned. It was the fact that your, your heart was circumcised. Your heart was affected to serve the Lord. And what he's saying to these Pharisees and, and, and all is you're coming to us just saying, you're the, you know, if Abraham's your father by way of circumcision. And that's not what God sees. That's not what God look, is looking at. In John chapter 8, verses 30 through 37, as Jesus spoke these words, 
many believed him and in him. And then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, and listen to what they said. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. What did they say? We're Abraham's descendants by the right of circumcision. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. That was a lie. <laughs> they were in bondage to the Romans, by the way, at that time. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free. Indeed, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. You see, their hearts weren't right with God, though they had been circumcised. He says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. And where would that place be? In the heart. So Paul wrote about this same attitude in Romans chapter 2 through 4. Uh, we're not going to go to that because I think, you know, I think we've got enough foundation uh, to see what's been going on. So now what Jeremiah was dealing with was the pride of his very own people as their judgment was rapidly approaching. The hoofbeats and the snorting of their enemies' horses could be heard from the north. I think you all, or many of you, I'm sure, uh, you saw those movies about the, the Lord of the Rings, right? And there were those, those creatures called the orcs. And remember, there were tens of thousands of them coming upon, you know, uh, one of the, uh, the towns or villages and all. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it was too long ago when I saw it. But anyway, and, and you remember how ugly they were. But, you know, when they started marching, tens of thousands, of they could hear, the people could hear them coming from miles away. And the hoofbeats and the snorting of their enemies' horses, the Babylonians' horses, could be heard from the north. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 16. They heard him in Dan. The whole earth was shaking due to the number and strength of the advancing army. Its purpose, you see, was to consume everything in the land, including Jerusalem and its citizens. And the enemy would be like a, a batch of fatally poisonous snakes that no one could charm. That was verse 17 of, of chapter 8. So the prospect of this disastrous invasion overwhelmed Jeremiah. Joy was gone. And I'm referring to the last part of chapter 8. Joy was gone. His heart was sick within him as he grieved over his people. And he said, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no healing bomb? No healing medication? In Gilead. Because he could see no physician on the horizon for Judah. Although the Lord God was Israel's great physician. Remember the words of the Lord to the people of Israel. Uh, or the Israelites in Exodus 15.26. When he says if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God. And do what is right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments. And keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The balm of Gilead was the Lord himself. 
but they had turned from him. They had rejected him. And as we come to chapter 9, we see how much Jeremiah still loved his people. So much so that he wished he had, he had more tears to shed for those that would perish. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Oh, that my head were waters. And my eyes a fountain of tears that, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that, that I might leave my people and, and go from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of, of treacherous men. Just like the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul, Jeremiah wept over the miserable and depressing spiritual condition of the people. And this was one reason he was known as the weeping prophet. Because he, he had a heart for his people. He wept for them, for their great sin against their God. And I wonder sometimes why, for the most part, tears are no longer shed over the sins of people today. Whether in pulpits or in pews. For many churches, the emphasis today seems to be on enjoyment and pleasure. Instead of evangelists, we have religious entertainers who have probably never read what James has written in James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, when he says, lament and mourn and weep. By the way, this is a New Testament passage, not an Old Testament passage. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and, and your joy to gloom. Be, be serious about the sin that separates people from God. But then he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. That's the wonder. That's the, the good side of, of this whole thought. We draw near to God. He draws near to us. But you know, when God draws near to us, we realize what, a, what sinful people we are. That was, that was Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, for I've seen the Lord of hosts. But the Lord of hosts has seen Isaiah's heart, just like he's seen our hearts. Have we wept over the sin that separated us from God? Oh, there's times when we need to see the reality of, of the holiness of God in everything that we do and say in this life. But as much as he wept for his people, Jeremiah also recognized how wicked they were. And he, and he just wanted to get away from his fellow countrymen and their wickedness. He loved them. He cared for them. But man, they were so sinful, he didn't even want to be around them. And he calls them what they were. They're all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men. And that adultery was not just as far as what they were doing maybe amongst themselves. The greater adultery was, was how they were being adulterous as far as with the other idols. And all the idols that they were embracing. All the idols that they were worshiping. And then he calls them an assembly of treacherous men. You know, uh, it's interesting that the phrase, a company of treacherous men, or an assembly of treacherous men, depending on what translation you have, literally means a solemn assembly. That word, assembly or, 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 or company. It, it means a solemn assembly. Every time that the shofar was blown, for the people to gather together, they were gathering together either to be warned of incoming judgment or they were gathered together for the sake of protecting themselves, for the sake of gathering the armies of Israel together. 
But they would also be blown so that they would gather together for a sacred or solemn assembly, so that they would hear from God, so that they would hear the directions that they needed from the Lord as a people together. And how they turn that around, because, and, 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 and he uses that in, that in that particular sense, an assembly, a sacred assembly of treacherous men. So facetiously he uses this. Because it describes their hypocrisy. Remember, they were going to the temple. They were going through all the motions of sacrifice and ceremony, yet they were still worshiping idols. So what good was the sacred assembly if they were spitting in God's face? So this gives you some indication of how sinful the people had become because God has not called us to remove ourselves from this world, but to minister to the people in the world. You see, Jeremiah was saying, get me out of here, man, this is crazy. That's how sinful it was. And just think about the ministry again. Think about the ministry of Jeremiah, one person for a whole nation and not one convert. Not one person turns in all of the years of ministry that Jeremiah gave for the Lord. I'm not giving anything away. I mean, you could read on and realize that through the whole of the book. But the fact of the matter is, they had to be so sinful. But God hasn't called us out. Notice that he just said, oh, that I had a place in the wilderness to to go and hide or to get away. But he knew he couldn't. He knew he was there for the purpose of telling these people what God had to say to them. And that's what we are to do in this world and in this time in which we live. We need to minister to the people in the world. Of course, we are to be in the world, but not of this world. And that's the distinction that we as Christians need to make. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Once we begin to, uh, uh, to be, uh, become like the world, once we begin to conform to the world, We become no longer effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why do we want to conform ourselves to the world or the things of the world? Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Don't be conformed to the things of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so there is that mission. There is that ministry that God has given to us all as believers in Jesus Christ in these last days in this world in which we live. Well, in verse 3, the Lord begins to speak and to make references to Judah's sinfulness as well. He says there in verse 3, and like their bow, by the way, this is God speaking, you'll see why in a moment, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They're not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, saith the Lord. You see, God is speaking, God is declaring. They do not know me. Everyone take heed to his neighbor. He's, now he's warning them. Everyone take heed to his neighbor. And do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanders. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. So he's bringing out the fact that their very hearts were, were, were somewhat deceitful, if not completely deceitful, with, even with each other. 
And they have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know, to know me, saith the Lord. When you look at the book of Revelation, and you realize that there is a statement being made before uh, heaven is open, in other words, there are those statements made to say, these are the things that keep you out of the kingdom of God. One of them is lies. Lies. God is a God of truth, therefore we need to be people of truth. And we need to speak the truth. And Paul goes a step further and he says, we need to speak the truth in love. We need to speak the truth in love. But you see, once you begin to believe lies, once you begin to hear lies, believe lies, you're going to say lies. Once you begin to tell lies, you're no longer in the truth. What was it that Jesus said in John? The truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. So the Lord added that the children of Judah bent their tongues to shoot their lies at people. And it came down to the fact that they spoke falsehood more than they spoke truth. And on top of that, they didn't even take a stand for the truth. And that that was even a a, a greater fault on on their part. They didn't fight for the truth, in other words. Does this not sound like modern politics? You see, it seems that it really doesn't matter what is good or best for our country. What matters is the political ideology of any party. But where is the truth? Where does the truth lie? Where is standing for what is right? Jude admonished us. Jude verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. When he says that, he's saying this is the truth. We are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They turn the grace of God into lewdness or licentiousness. Do whatever you want. It's okay. God doesn't mind. God, it doesn't matter to God. But we know that there's a right and we know that there's a wrong. We have to stand for what is right. The Lord was also warning His people to be on guard against their neighbors and, do, and not to trust even their fellow Jews because they all dealt deceitfully and slandered one another. In fact, the word that He used, uses there for supplant, do you see that there in verse 4? For every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanders. That very word supplant in verse 4 comes from the same root word as Jacob. Yaakov. Supplanter. That's what Jacob was called. Supplanter. In essence, the people were acting like Jacob at his worst. And you remember what Jacob did from the very beginning. Even before he was born, he was already supplanting. That's why he was called Jacob. His brother Esau, his twin brother, at the time that they were being born, as Esau's coming out of the womb, Jacob's holding on to his foot, his heel, supplanting, you see. Saying, oh, no, not you first, me first. 
And many times in Jacob's life, it was about Jacob and not about anybody else. It's a good thing that when Jacob met the Lord, that the Lord changed his name from Jacob to Israel. But that's why many times we see in scriptures that when God may speak to Israel, he sometimes calls them Jacob because of the attitude of their heart. To lie, to deceive, to supplant, you see. So they intentionally deceived their neighbors and actually they they cultivated the skill of lying. They became good at lying. And they pursued iniquity. And I want, I want to emphasize the word pursued. They pursued iniquity. What is iniquity? Sin. They pursued iniquity. They pursued sin so vigorously that it wore them out. Look at verse 5. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. They get tired of doing it, but they do it anyway. It wears them out. They work hard at it. I know that some of you came here on Wednesday night. You worked all day. You were kind of tired, but you said, "Oh, you know, I got to go to work. I got to go to. I got to go to church." And, and here you are. And praise the Lord. I'm glad you're here. But you worked hard, and you know you were kind of weary when before you came. We hope that you've been refreshed a little bit. The fact of the matter is, you weren't wearing yourself out because you were looking for and pursuing sin, were you? Man, that pursuing sin is really tiring. <sighs> it must be. When you pursue it that hard and that strong. (laughs) But deceit had become their environment. Look, verse 6. Deceit had become their environment. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. And through deceit they refused to know me. Deceit had become their environment so much so that it kept them from having a relationship with God. Because they pursued iniquity. They pursued sin. They were weary in pursuing that iniquity. They got tired doing it, but they did it anyway. What do we pursue? What are the things that God has called us to pursue as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, there's a long list of stuff that we could go through. I'm just going to give you a few points. But in Psalm 34, verse 14, notice what it says. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. How many of us are pursuing peace? How many of us are seeking peace and pursuing it? By departing from evil and doing what is good. Look at Hosea chapter 6 verse 3. There it says, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. How many of us are pursuing the knowledge of the Lord as opposed to pursuing iniquity? His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. But he says, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. That's why you guys are here tonight. I hope. I hope you're here. I hope you're not just sitting here waiting for the bus. I hope you're here because you're pursuing the knowledge of the Lord. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Are you getting a little bit of a theme here? From depart from evil and do good in Psalm 34 to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue 
what is good both for yourselves and for all. That's a good thing to pursue, isn't it? To pursue what is good. Because you see, there are good things to pursue. Don't believe the world. Don't believe the philosophies of the world that say, well, you know, you make whatever is good. You, you know, it's whatever is good for you, that's you take. Because if we take that, that, that frame of mind down to its worst place, then you, you would have to say that even Hitler himself was only pursuing what he believed was good. But he begins by saying, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, so therefore there is an evil and there is good, and we need to pursue what is good. And then Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, and this is a good one. He says, but you, O man of God, speaking to Timothy, he says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. And he was talking about fleeing youthful lusts, by the way. Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. That's a wonderful list to pursue, isn't it? I think we ought to weary ourselves in pursuing this. But the effect of the matter is that if, you, if, if you're pursuing these things, you don't get weary. Because even Paul would say, you know, don't be weary in doing good. Do, do this. You, you won't get weary if, if you do good things, you see. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Patience and gentleness. Wonderful things to pursue. Don't you think it's better to, to just expend yourself in pursuing these things than to pursue iniquity? But what happened was that it all came down to the fact that they refused to know God. Bottom line, they didn't know God and it came down to the fact that they refused to know God. It was an act of their will. They chose not to know God. Even with everything that they had that pointed to Him, they refused to know Him. This knowledge that it speaks of in this passage that we're looking at in Jeremiah is so much more than intellectual knowledge. It is not just knowing about God. It is knowing Him intimately. It is the deep, intimate knowledge that follows the personal commitment of one life to another. That is what this knowledge is that is being spoken of there in verse 6. Through deceit they refused to know me, to have an intimate knowledge of me, to make a personal commitment to me of one life to another. They bring their life, I give them mine. Isn't that a wonderful thing that God wants to give? His very own life for ours? And yet we still remain alive in His presence because He loves us so much that He cares for everything we need and gives us everything we need. And so the first six verses of Jeremiah, chapter 9, makes, uh, makes it clear that just being God's covenant, or covenant people is no excuse for sin. Just by uh, being God's covenant people through the act of circumcision is no excuse for sin. So as we move into the next section of this chapter, the focus turns to the idea that the same status offers no escape from judgment. The same status meaning that uh, just because you're God's covenant people and you've been circumcised, th that means there's, it doesn't mean there's, uh, you know, that you can make up excuses for judgment. 
or I should say, uh, no escape from judgment. There's not, there, there's not going to be an escape from judgment, in other words, if you are circumcised. Merely of the flesh. And so verse 7 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. He goes on on this issue of deceit. And then he says, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the, of the wilderness, a lamentation. By the way, this, at verse 10 now, this is Jeremiah speaking. I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation. In other words, a, a song of sorrow because they are burned up so that no one can pass through. Nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They're gone. But then God speaks again. He says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. So if you remember back in chapter 6, the, the Lord called Jeremiah to be an assayer, an assayer or a, a tester of metals to Judah. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 6 verses 27 to 30. I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels walking as slanders. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. They, the bellows blow fiercely. The bellows, of course, you know, that was the thing that pumped air into a, hot, a, a fire to make the fire grow hotter to melt the, the metals themselves. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. So remember when, when he calls Jeremiah an assayer. But in our text here, the Lord promises to put Judah through that refining process to assay or to assess them, to evaluate their value. In effect, this was the punishment then their, uh, their favored status invited. What I mean by their favored status is what? That they said, oh, we're sons of Abraham because we've been circumcised. That favored status is inviting an even greater judgment. Greater judgment then would be this tremendous testing by fire. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 12 verse 48. He says, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. For everyone to whom much is given, for him much will be required. What did Israel have? What did Judah have? They had the word of God. They had the law of God. They had the temple that was made for the worship of God. They had the law of God. They had everything that they needed to have fellowship with their God. But they refused God. And they refused to know Him. So what... You know, to whom much is given, much will be required. As they're being tested, 
They're going to be found to be wanting. They're not going to be precious silver. They're not going to be precious gold. What are they going to be? They're going to be lead and somewhat of a rejected silver. It may look good on the outside, but it's too polluted. It it doesn't set itself right to be good silver. Why? Because of their sin. Because of their rejection of their God. And God asked asked a striking, thought-provoking question here. He said, should he avenge himself, take vengeance due to the people's sins? Would he be justified in executing justice and correcting all the injustices and wicked behavior of the people? Well, the answer is obvious. To save the world, society must be cleansed of all lawless, violent, and immoral behavior. Ask yourself the question, where's the law sometimes? Where's the law sometimes when people who are, I mean, without a doubt guilty, are are allowed to go free due to some kind of a small little, you know, mistake on a report or, or, you know, even a, a prosecutor's argument or whatever. What, what happens? Justice isn't served. And God who says, ah, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, is asking the question, should I not avenge myself? So consider that all injustices and all wicked conduct must be removed from society. People who are unwilling to turn from their wicked ways must face judgment and be removed from the land. Now, just think of this, that in some day in the near future, there will be that day when all people, all people will stand before God in judgment. Believers of Jesus Christ, believers in Christ, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is really a blessed judgment in a sense. But those who do not believe in Christ, those who have rejected Jesus, those who have heard the message, but they said, I don't believe in God, I don't want to believe in God, I don't want to have anything to do with God, or even the hypocrite who says, well, I believe in God, but inside he doesn't and does everything else that he wants to do. That's a statement of rejection as well. All these people will have to stand before what is called the white throne judgment of God to be dealt with for their sins. God has been very patient. God has been long-suffering, giving everyone an opportunity because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But do all come to repentance? Obviously the answer is no. I'm always fascinated by books about people's last words, you know, the dying words of people. You read some of these things, it's really incredible. Some people uh, say, you know, as their last words. It's a wonderful thing when you read about a Christian who's dying and they, they, get, they say, I see the Lord. I'm ready. Or uh, any number of things that, that just express the fact that, that God has taken him home. But then there's others who say, oh, I'm afraid it's all darkness. Especially the words of atheists and agnostics. 
Some of those I can't repeat. When we think of what justice is to be in our time and in our land, this is somewhat of what God was having to tell the people of Israel, the people of Judah. And that's as you inspect the law, as you go through the law, which no one could keep, by the way, except Jesus Christ. That's why he came to fulfill the law for us. If we believe in him, then the law is fulfilled for us in Christ. But you see, people were unwilling to turn from their wicked ways, and, and so they'll have to face some judgment and be removed from the land. This is the only way a true righteous society can be built. Thus, the answer for God's question is clear. He should avenge himself against all the wicked of the earth and punish them. And then the Lord takes up this lamentation on behalf of the land. And really, it's, it's Jeremiah, but he takes up this lamentation on, the, uh, on behalf of the land that suffered because of his people's sin. The invasion that was coming would leave the land deserted even by beasts and birds. They're not even going to be around. They're going to take off because of what's going to happen to the whole land. The rest of the passage indicates that the invasion had not yet taken place. So it was something that was still yet to come. But Jeremiah is writing as if it had already taken place. So the prophet was describing a future event as though it had already passed. And again, the destruction that was coming was the result of Judah not turning back to God and the city as well as the nation was going to be devastated. And as far as the the prophet was concerned, it was already devastation. And so in verse 12 it says, Who is the wise man who may understand this? Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts. There it is again. Early on in our study of the book of Jeremiah, I mentioned that over 60 times the the word heart is mentioned in this letter. Or in this book. And it's either heart or hearts. But either way, it is the very central key to understanding the word of God to the people of Judah in the time of their most uh, horrible sins against their God. And so he says, but they have walked according to the dictates or the imagination of their own hearts. And after the Baals, or the Baals, the the foreign gods, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. Now, let me make the quick contrast here. He's in essence telling them, Behold, I will feed this people with wormwood instead of honey. I will feed them uh, water of gall to drink instead of milk. What, what, had, what had God brought them into? What do we call the land? A land of milk and honey. 
If you will just believe me and trust me and let me lead you and guide you and protect you and do all these things with you and for you, this land is yours and everything that's in it is for your good. It's for your blessing. Milk and honey, all for you. But now he says, you know what? The way that you've treated me, the way that you're treating my my law, the way that you are refusing to believe in me in essence, then I'm going to have to give you wormwood, a plant that was bitter, And then water of gall to drink another bitter type of herb that was mixed. Remember that gall was given to Jesus. And then he says, I will scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known. That was the Babylonians. They didn't know about the Babylonians. The Babylonians are coming. And they they look like the orcs, remember those guys. And And they're coming, they're marching, they're on their way down. I never knew them. They didn't have Fox News to see what was going on in the other part of the world or CNN. This was a whole new empire coming. They knew of the Assyrians, but who beat the Assyrians? Babylonians. So much of this, of course, is rehashing most of what has already been dealt with beforehand, but there is a restating of the judgment itself. Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? Well, God was calling for some wise person to step forward and explain the reason for the land's coming desolation or desolate condition. Well, you know, he asked the question, but the Lord provided the answer. He asks the question, but the Lord provides the answer. Isn't that interesting? The people had abandoned God's covenant with them, they hadn't walked in its commandments. And they had paid no attention to his messages to them. And so they were walking according to the imaginations or the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals or the Baals. They remained stubborn, in other words. They remained stubborn. This is a constant theme in the book of Jeremiah. The people of God, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were stubborn. Stubbornness, by the way, was once described by someone as atrophy of the will. Atrophy of the will. Now, in, the, in, in physiology and in, in, in the body, you know, and as far as the physical sense, atrophy, muscles can, can atrophy. And if muscles atrophy, which means you don't use them for any amount of time, if you don't use muscles, they can't do anything, right? They, they just kind of go limp and they become ineffective. So think about it. When people stubbornly refuse to do right, Listen, when people stubbornly refuse to do right, the time comes when they cannot do right. And that's what he's referring to here, the stubbornness. When they refuse to do right, eventually they cannot do right. And because the people were stubborn, the Lord promised to feed them wormwood instead of honey, poison water instead of milk. And then, of course, they'd be scattered among the Gentiles. And, of course, we knew that that was going to be part of the the judgment. Let's go on. Verses 17 to 22. We only have just a few minutes here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call all the mourning women. And that's not, you know, women who get up early in the day. That's not mourning, that, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, it's M-O-U-R-N, mourning, weeping women. Call the weeping women, you know, it's in the, in the yellow pages. But in fact, that's what it was. These were professional mourners. 
That's why he says, call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that their eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered. We are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land because we have been cast out of our dwellings. All this is coming. Yet, hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and everyone her neighbor a lamentation. In other words, a dirge or a funeral hymn or song. For death has come through our windows, has entered our, pla- our palaces to kill off the children. Notice, no longer to be outside. Where do children like to be summertime? Outside. He says the young men no longer in the streets or in the marketplaces. Speak, thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse. That's a nice word to say manure or dung. Listen to what he says. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as manure or dung on the open field. We could get even more descriptive if you want to get closer to the Hebrew. But no, it's okay. We won't do that. I think you all got the picture, right? You know what manure and dung are. Like cuttings after the harvester and no one shall gather them. In the culture of the time, let's go back to this mourning women. In the culture of the time, the people would hire professional mourners for their loved ones. By the way, it still happens in some places in the Middle East. They still have professional mourners. I don't know if you've ever seen when they're having a, uh, they're carrying a casket through the streets of, of Gaza or, uh, you know, one of the Palestinian areas uh, when somebody has been killed, a suicide bomber, let's say, as they're carrying them out. You see all these women wearing, you know, their, their headdress and all, and, the, and they're, they're going, you know, do all this. Those are actually professional mourners. And, and they're there for the cameras. But listen, this is what they're doing. They, they, they're hired so that they, they can uh, show how much the deceased person was loved. In other words, the more noise, the more the person was loved. It's not like in our culture today, man. The choir it is, oh, they really love that person. Over there, man, they make a burla, you know. Like, ah, you know, that's crazy. Oh, that person must have been loved. Around here, it's like, shh, be quiet. We love this person. <laughs> now, of course, when we do a funeral, uh, we call it a celebration of life. We celebrate a person's life who knows Jesus Christ. Go, and, go to heaven. We sing and we do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we just don't, we just don't do the little thing, you know. Well, we love them anyway, you know, and we, we sing unto the Lord. Thank, we thank the Lord for the life that they gave us to that person. But a new song now was to be taught, you see. It was to be taught to the daughters. They were to mourn over the death that would cover the city of Jerusalem when the Babylonians would invade. They were to bewail their ruin and their shame in having to leave the land as captives with their homes destroyed. I mean, that's going to be a sad song, isn't it? This judgment was not going to be quick. And their captivity would last some 70 years. And Judah's only hope 
lay in her relationship with God. And so this reflection on the nature of true wisdom is given to strongly contrast the previous funeral song. And look at verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. You remember the knowledge that we talked about of God, the knowledge that that was in personal, intimate, deep, intimate relationship with God? That's what he's saying. He's saying this, Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, executing loving kindness. What is loving kindness? Mercy. Executing loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, saith the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Interesting picture here. And then he says, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners. By the way, the farthest corners is not talking about distance. Literally, it's talking about the way that uh, these uh, particular um, Arabic-type peoples, because that's what they're going to become later on, that, we're, that we know them. You know, they're not, they're not Israelites and they're out of the promise, but they, they're the ones that, that cut straight corners on their temples, which the Jewish people were commanded not to do. You know how you've seen some of the Jews that have the curls right here and the curls on their hair? And so this is what they're talking about. Those who are in the farthest corners, the corners cut in their hairs, who dwell in the wilderness, the nomadic peoples and tribes. For all these nations are uncircumcised, he says. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Uncircumcised in the heart. There it is again. So this passage says clearly that just being God's covenant people and circumcised in flesh is no guarantee of spiritual understanding. No amount of education, no amount of power or wealth, those three things, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, the mighty man in his might, the rich man in his riches, these three things that the world today depends upon and they boast in can assure anyone of the blessings of God. None of these things can assure them the blessings of God. The Lord doesn't delight in a nation's intellectual and educational strength. The Lord doesn't delight in political influence. And power. He doesn't delight in military strength or in, an, in any nation's gross national product. He delights in a people who practice mercy and kindness. He delights in people who practice justice and righteousness simply because they know and they fear the Lord. God promises covenant blessings to those who obey Him, not to those who only offer pious religious observances. And you can transfer that thought from the temple of, you know, where people go and they offer their sacrifice and yet in their hearts they're not there for God. You can transfer that thought to people who come to church week in and week out, but their hearts are never with God. Their hearts are never for God. Their hearts are never toward Jesus, never toward the cross, never toward the Spirit of God. And it's here that we understand why we began the way we did back at the onset of our teaching. 
Because the Jews boasted in their covenant sign of circumcision, but it was only in their flesh. The true spiritual circumcision never reached their hearts. Remember back in Jeremiah 4 verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, God gave them warning. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. He gave them opportunity. See, that's our God. God always gives opportunity for us to repent. But did they repent? I read this earlier, Deuteronomy 10.16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. In the, in the message that Stephen gave to the Jews who would eventually stone him to death, Stephen said this in Acts 7.51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And Paul would refer to that in Romans 2, verses 25 to 29, when he says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? You know what that is? The circumcision of the heart. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Take note. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You see, every time they boasted in front of John the Baptist, in front of Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants. Abraham is our father. You know what they were saying? We're circumcised. That's all we need. They had the, they had the prophecy of Jeremiah. Had they read it? And if they read it, had they believed it. So look where God places Judah. With all the circumcised, uncircumcised pagan nations. I, I, on my notes I put circumcised slash uncircumcised. Because that's what they were. By the way, those uh, nations mentioned, look at them. Egypt, Edom, Ammon, Moab. By a certain time, they also would become, in their particular religions, circumcised people. But their circumcision was only of the flesh and not of the heart. So where does Judah fit? Where does God put them? He puts them with the uncircumcised of heart. Why? Because they were no better. He puts them with them because they were no better than these people. In fact, they were worse because they knew better. See, that's the thing. They knew better. And they didn't do anything about it. Their confidence was a false confidence. But I want you to consider Paul's confidence. Because I've got to close with this. But Paul speaks about this confidence. They were placing their confidence in circumcision. What was Paul placing his confidence in before he came to Christ? Turn to Philippians 3. We're going to close with this. It's 11 verses, but I'm going to read them all. You've, you've heard me read them before. So uh, 
Hear me again. Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. And he's not speaking of little puppies or, you know, your pets at home. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. He's defining it more. Beware of the mutilation. What's the mutilation? Circumcision of the flesh and not of the heart. Got it? He calls them dogs. Wow. That's a strong term. But then notice what he goes on to say. For we are the circumcision. Speaking to Christians, many of them Gentiles, but he says, but we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now do you understand when he says in the flesh? He's speaking of the confidence that was placed upon the circumcision. And then he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anybody could, Paul says, I could. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more. So, circumcised the eighth day. Yeah, he knew, he knew when he got circumcised. Well, every Jewish boy would know because they would tell him, oh, it was on the eighth day. They would never do it on any other day. That was the law. By the way, it's an interesting thing that it's scientific too. The doctors will not circumcise a baby before the eighth day because it hasn't given the body enough time to allow the blood to be able to coagulate. So it's a scientific thing. God, who created science? Oh, my goodness. Isn't that wonderful? You see, everybody say, oh, you know, all those Christians don't believe in science. Oh, yeah, we do. We believe in science much more than them. Anyway. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, he's going down his whole resume concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Blameless. Boy, he had a lot to be confident in, except for one thing. He says, but what things were gained to me in the flesh? These I have counted loss for Christ. And yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. The very same concept and idea of knowing God intimately and completely in the heart and deeply giving life for another. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. By the way, there's that nice word for that word dung and manure and you know what else? He says, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. What was Paul's righteousness in in the flesh? All that list of things he said he was. That's what he boasted in. But when he came to Christ, he had nothing to boast in but the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he says, that I may know Him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead that by all means and by every way I can attain to the resurrection confidence in the flesh? no confidence in Christ confidence in Jesus Paul says it is no longer I who live But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.
Galatians 2.20. Mark it, read it, learn it, and live it. Confidence in Christ. Let's pray.